We are back for episode 12 of the Boundary Rider podcast. Lachlan McCurdy here. As always, I'm joined by Nick Savage. How are you, Nick? Lock, I'm doing well. I'm doing very well. There's two BBL games happening right now, so I'm desperately trying to work out how to telecast both of them through KO at the moment. And uh, yeah, it's after just wrapping up another test match, it's uh, good to see there's plenty of cricket still happening on our TVs. Oh gosh, we've got so much to talk about. You mentioned the BBL. I mean, everything's happening there. So many incredible results and incredible innings, but we've also got test cricket to talk about. India, they have leveled the series down in Melbourne on the back of Ajinka Rahane's batting and his captaincy. We've also got to talk ICC Awards of the Decade. Virat Kohli sweeping the big awards there, but also Elise Perry during Australia. Very proud. Then we'll go through some of the international stories. Faf Duplessis getting out for 199. Kane Williamson doing Kane Williamson things. And then, of course, Savage Seeds. Remember, before we get into the rest of the episode, you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple or Spotify. Leave a rating, leave a comment. It really is much appreciated. And you can also hit us up on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, Boundary Rider or The Boundary Rider Podcast. And you can also hit us up on email, boundaryriderpod at gmail.com. Nick, we've got to get straight into this second test at the MCG, the Boxing Day test. That's now two out of the last three that Australia have lost. What is going on? And, I mean, where do we start? I think we need to start with the batting, really, because that was the big problem for the Australians in the test match. It was the first time since 1988 that no player in the Australian test side was able to score a half century in a home test match. Mm. Now that is obviously just abysmal in itself, but you look at some of the dismissals as well, some really lazy, ugly shots, some really unwarranted shots, Steve Smithing, Bowen Rudder's legs, Travis Head playing away from his body. It, it was a real shame to watch. So yeah, I think the batting is the biggest concern right now for Australia. That Travis Head dismissal in the second innings was the one that disappointed me the most, I think for a number of reasons. Obviously, he's been caught edging a lot of times before, edging off to the slips, whether it's back, maybe even to a third man. But he's done that a lot in his career. So you'd hope that he really works on that and he doesn't get out that way anymore. But he just keeps finding a way to do that. Second, it was Siraj's first ball of his spell. He didn't even wait to try and see how he was bowling or get a few balls to sort of see how it was coming out of his hand. He just played this wide cover shot off his first delivery. And it just, for someone who many people believe is the captain in waiting, essentially, he's a 26-year-old who has great leadership qualities, especially in the Sheffield Shield. He's done well with South Australia in terms of leading his side around. He's been vice-captain. He's been thereabouts in the Australian team. But for someone who people expect to be test captain, that is not the shot, not only of a test captain potentially in the future, but a test player. I would have thought by now that Travis Head would have enough experience to know, you know, learn a bit more about patience in his innings and leaving the ball and things that you seem to learn in the Sheffield Shield. Like in the Sheffield Shield, you, you should know when to leave the ball outside of stump. Like that's a fundamental thing. Batsman should fundamental. Know, he's still, yeah, exactly. But he still seems to be swatting away at anything that's slightly overpitched outside off stump. And as you said, he's so often caught in gully, the covers and in third man. And most frustrating for selectors particularly, it's only after he's gotten to 20-odd, 30-odd. He so often gets to double figures, but rarely goes on to the big total, which Australia desperately needed this test match. And his test record, as you were sort of saying, it just, it lacks the big score that warrants him having a cemented place in the side. Sure, his current test average is around 38, 39, which is okay for someone who's coming at five. Obviously, you'd want more, but you can live with that. But take out his two tests that he's played against Sri Lanka, including one where he got a really good century, and that average, that test batting average drops to 31. You can't have someone batting at number five in your Australian test lineup who for the most part of their test career, has averaged 31. It's just way too low. With David Warner and Will Pukowski both reportedly on track to return before the next test match, and at the same time, Marcus Harris and Moses Henriquez waiting in the wings, I mean, there's a good chance Travis Head may not feature in the New Year's test, wherever that may be. Well, we've got to look at some of the other batting performances. You mentioned Steve Smith, zero and, I mean, look, zero and eight, it's a big blip. It's not what you expect from Smith. I think he's been in the bubble almost too long that he probably should have taken a break during that limited over series, but now we're sort of seeing the back end of that and he'll bounce back. I think we're all confident that that will happen. 
but on the other side of things, getting rolled for 195 and 200 in your two innings, not one player past 50. I mean, there's a lot of concerns there, but we've got to start at the top. Joe Burns, zero and four. Is there any way he plays in the third test? No, there's no way. I yep. think unless there was a mass exodus of opening batsmen, like just a, a bizarre um, flu goes around all opening batsmen across the country. That's the only way I can see him playing in the third test. It is <laughs> so many people I'd pick ahead of him. I would bring in any random opener from around the Sheffield Shield ahead of him at this stage. Well, I found it really interesting. Tim Payne kind of speaking after the test was asked about Joe Burns in his place and basically said, oh, Joe Burns still really wants to play test cricket for Australia. And the first thing I thought was, doesn't everyone, isn't that what every kid dreams of doing when they grow up? Just because he wants to play test cricket for Australia shouldn't mean he should be playing test cricket for Australia. I mean, what else can Tim Payne say at this point? There's not a lot else he can say. I guess that's true. Well, speaking of Tim Payne, he had a fair bit to say about a number of issues, but on the main part of what went wrong in this test, it was clearly that there wasn't enough runs, and this is how he dissected the MCG Boxing Day test. Uh, yeah, I think that was one of the factors. I think dropping a number of catches probably didn't help. Um, yeah, just a bit of a sloppy performance, I think, um, in the field. And now, as you said, just not enough runs again. Um, it's it's early days, obviously, but uh, do you feel that there maybe needs to be some changes to that batting lineup to get some more runs? Um, no, not necessarily. I just think you need to bat better. It doesn't matter who's who's out there. We need to be scoring runs. That's our job is as the top seven of the Australian cricket team. And if you're not, um, you know, obviously they'll they'll look for other people. But um, yeah, I think we've got the best people here at the moment. Um, we just just haven't been good enough to get the job done. So a lot has changed in a little over a week for the Australian cricket team. We came out of Adelaide celebrating rolling India for 36. It was a formidable performance. Australia's batting lineup was still kind of shaky, but their bowlers absolutely carried them to victory. We kind of said on on the podcast last week that it kind of papered over the cracks of the batting lineup, the fact that the bowlers did so well, and we, we saw that here, but... Another part of Australia's performance that was just so disappointing at the MCG was their fielding. And a lot of it seemed to be from their batters. What went wrong in the field, Nick? It was bizarre, wasn't it, that at Adelaide, India were mocked and scrutinised for their fielding and dropped catches. And then the the roles almost reversed in in the Melbourne test. India was superb in the field, almost Mm. flawless. And Australia were doing the sloppy misfields and those seven drop catches. And, I mean, of those seven drop catches, I would say, correct me if I'm wrong, I'd say five of them were regulation. Oh, yeah. Like catches that you would typically take most of the time. Um, Even I would have taken some of them. And that's saying something. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I I would have preferred you to be under that Travis Head one at point for sure. Um, Yeah, it was really bizarre. The reason for that, I, I really, really don't know because... I mean, we can't really criticise their training. They, I mean, they have been working really, really hard since they all returned from the IPL. They've been training pretty much every day, um, mm. specifically on their fielding and, and bowling. So I really don't understand why, but it really was dreadful. It was a dreadful fielding performance. And it was the first time Australia had dropped six catches in a test innings since 2012, I saw from the Crick Viz Bottoms. Gosh, it, it was just so disappointing because especially on that... That second day, they just looked so downcast when they left the field. Usually you see an Australian side when they're walking off the ground after a day's play, they're still high in spirits, they're high-fiving, they're doing whatever. But they just looked so down because there were so many chances to get themselves, to drag themselves back into that game that they just let go. And nothing summed it up more than that Travis Head drop that he had it, he had it in his hands, but as soon as he hit the ground, he hadn't braced himself and... It was just such a disappointing way to end day two and it kind of sucked all the momentum that they had kind of worked back by bowling well, bowling really good lines. They just, it it was so disappointing because as you kind of mentioned, something we've had as an an Australian fan base for so long is great fielding teams. We've been blessed from the likes of Ricky Ponting and Andrew Simons and going before that you have your Mark Taylors and Mark Wars who just were great catches in the slips and we were faced with this reality, the MCG, that was so disappointing. 
hopefully this is just a one-off blip. Um, the fielding, to be fair, wasn't great in the one-day series either. Just coming to my mind now, there were four or five drop catches in that one-day series as well. So maybe this isn't just a blip. Maybe there is some sort of post-coronavirus fielding problem in the Australian side, but uh, hopefully it can improve ahead of or well, into the new year, new year because, I mean, I mean, it's the oldest saying in cricket, but catches do win matches, and it showed over the past couple of weeks. They certainly do, and I'm sure that the Australian fielding team will have oh, the slip catcher will be out, the trampoline will be out. They'll be doing a lot of practice ahead of the third test. Now, the next big talking point we have to look out of this match: the decision review system. Tim Payne absolutely slammed it, saying he definitely didn't hear it. Said he had a bit of a disagreement with David Boone, the match umpire, after the call was made that he was given out. I think we've had lots of commentators say, how can he be given out? But how was Pajara not given out on review? There was even the case on day four when Mitchell Stark was sent upstairs, caught behind. Didn't look like he'd caught it, but then there was controversy over, well, DRS should have given him out on review, not not out because it was the LBW. And there just seems to be so many questions that we're not sure how DRS is working. First on the pain stuff and the Tim Payne dismissal, what did you make of it, Nick? Well, it's been so long. It's been a very long time since there's been such an angry reaction to DRS decisions in a test match. Mm. It, it goes back nine, ten years when I can remember such bitterness and, and and such fierce anger as a response to it. And I think the interesting thing about Tim Payne, and he said this in the media, was that his wicket was very similar to that of Chiteshwar Pajara early on day two. Yes. And that they were both given not out on the, by the on-field umpire for court behind. In both instances, the fielding side went upstairs. In both instances, there was nothing on hotspot. And also in both instances, there was a small spike on Snicko. But for some reason, uh, the third umpire decided to overturn the decision for Payne, but Pajara survived in his instance. And Payne was just sort of pointing out the hypocrisy and just asking, well, why? Why have, why have I been given out when India's best batsman got another go? And that was just the most interesting aspect of it for me, that slight inconsistency. See, I kind of have a different view that when you put the, the Snickos side by side for both of those two balls, it is very clear that Payne's is larger than the one that Pajara had. Sure, it is minimal, but it is there is a clear discrepancy in terms of Payne had a larger mark on his Snicko than Pajara did. So... As long as from now on, the, that is the way we judge caught behind when we're sending it up to the review system, I am, I guess, okay with it because they've kind of set a precedent now that if it's such a minimal thing that it barely registers, sure. But if there is the tiniest of spike, then we have to give it out. As long as that's the playing conditions, then okay, then we go with that. But when you have pain coming out so vehemently post the, the <clears throat> When you have pain coming out so vehemently opposed to the decision and saying, I didn't hit it, I know I didn't hit it, it is a bit of a concern because you're undermining the technology, you're undermining the umpire's decision, and it could be the sort of thing that gets him in trouble with the match referee. I think for me, I don't know the process that the third umpires go through exactly, but for me, I would only be overturning an on-field decision if there is clear evidence of the the wrong decision was made. Like we've seen it in the Big Bash, and we'll get onto this later, when it's just a clear howler, like a proper error, that's the only time I'll be overturning an on-field decision. If it's something like, oh, there's a slight bump there, or, oh, there's, you know, perhaps for one frame, there's a flash of Snicko on here. I, forget all that. It has to be an absolute howler for them to overturn, in my opinion. I think far too often we see decisions made on tiny little discrepancies in the technology. Well, speaking of match referees and decisions that they've made, Australia have been slapped with a surprisingly heavy fine and punishment from the ICC for a slow overrate in the second test against India. In an ICC statement released after the match on Tuesday, it was announced that Australia have been fined 40% of their match fee and penalised four ICC World Test Championship points for maintaining a slow overrate against India in the second test. David Boone, along with the on-field umpires Bruce Oxenford and Paul Rifle, joined by Paul Wilson and fourth umpire Jared Abood, all levelled the charge. That's a big penalty. And essentially for two overs late that they, 
we're not sure which day it was, but I think we're assuming that it might have been that day too when there was a bit of rain around. But 40% of their match fee and four test championship points, that's that's more than just a slap on the wrist. I do understand that there are, you know, there's DRS now and there are some other factors that mean the game goes slightly slower, but they do have six and a half hours to get through 90 overs. And frankly, like that should be done quite easily. It has to be done quite easily. So I'm hoping that the Australian players and in, in that matter, all test sides sort of cop that on the chin and, and kind of actually work a bit harder to get through the overs a bit quicker. Um, and I know the batsmen have a role in that as well. You know, they need to stop calling for the gloves so often as an example, but yeah, no, hundred percent. I've got no issues with this. If Australia were too slow, they need to be better. They need to be better because um, I mean, there's a chance that we'll be heading towards four day test matches in the future. And then they will definitely be pushed to, getting through the overs quicker in that instance, for sure. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. And in terms of how those four test championship points affect the overall table, Australia is still in front on 322 points, which works out at 76.6 percentage of the points they could earn. India now move up to second. Well, I think they were second, but move up and close the gap a little bit. 72.2% there. And yeah, it's... It could make a difference at the end of the day. I don't think it will because Australia have a big enough lead. But, yeah, just something that Tim Payne and the Aussies would not have wanted coming out of that test match. Well, can you imagine if they didn't? Can you imagine if they didn't make that final because of one or two points? And, and that and that slow over rate was the difference. Oh, dear. That'd be a good way to learn your lesson, that's for sure. Oh, definitely. Before we move on from this test match, a couple more things that we got to chat about. Firstly... Just how good was that Indian performance? Because a lot will be made of Australia's batting woes and how disappointing they were. But India with both bat and ball, I thought were supremely impressive in Melbourne. And in the field. And mm. in the field. A really big turnaround from their pretty poor fielding performance in Adelaide. With the bat, I mean, obviously, Jenka Rahane, his second century at the MCG, a, a very classy knock from him. Um, but he was well supported by, I think, Shubman Gill. He only scored 40-odd, but it was one of the most impressive debut performances I've seen from touring batsmen here in a while. And every single bowler contributed with the ball, every single one of them. And Ravi Ashwin has been a revelation he, he typically hasn't done very well in Australia and just overseas in general, but he always looks really threatening now. Absolutely. He's been he's been very consistent. He's always seems to take wickets when Australia really don't need to lose a wicket. And yeah, he, for me, has been one of the most impressive performance for India. Good on you, Ravi Ashwin. He's proved a lot of his doubt is wrong there. And I really found interesting what um, Ravi Shastri had to say post-match that he sees Ravi Jadeja as an out-and-out all-rounder now so that you can pick him at a 6, 7 or 8 and he can sort of fit into the lineup where needed. And previously it was kind of a, if Ashram plays, Jadeja probably doesn't play and vice versa. Whereas now they found a blend that they can play in the same team together and it's working wonders for them. And especially if we do go to Sydney, even if they stay in Melbourne, I think they're going to stay with that same format because it works so well. And the beauty of having Jadeja, um, if someone like Umesh Yadav does go down with injury, as we saw on well, late on day three, then they do have that fourth bowling option still. They still having five bowlers there brings a lot of depth to to both their batting and bowling. So, yeah, I mean it, it's starting to remind me of that England side in the Ashes a couple of years ago and, and the role that Ben Stokes played in balancing out the batting and bowling. It's a, it's a really useful thing to have. And obviously, hopefully, Cameron Green can serve that role over the coming few years. What we have to look at here is just where they go going forward. But who would have thought after they were bowled out for 36 that this was the sort of performance they would put together? Ravi Shastri certainly didn't. And this is what he had to say post-match. I think this will go down in the annals of Indian cricket, world cricket, as one of the great comebacks you know, in the history of the game. You know, to be rolled over for 36 and then three days later to get up and be ready to punch is, uh, was outstanding. I think the boys deserve all the credit for the character they showed. Real character. Nick, he called it the greatest comeback potentially in the history of Test cricket. I'm sure there'd be a lot of Test matches that potentially would argue with that. But where do you place that? Was it that good? Oh, it'd certainly be up there. I mean, this is a side that wasn't only bowled out for 36, but then after that, you took away their best batsman in Virat Kohli going home. Mm. And, and then in response, 
a really gritty performance of the MCG where historically they haven't necessarily done very well. So it has to be up there for sure as a great comeback. I mean, in the context of the series, they've gone from, you know, but being bought for 36 and being almost laughed, laughed at from the cricketing world. And all of a sudden the one test away from retaining the border Gavaskar trophy. I mean, that's phenomenal. So yeah, I, I've got no issue with Ravi's um, statements there at all. I mean, Fair enough. I mean, hopefully they can maintain that through the rest of the series. I just want to put it out there. I did say that India will go home with the Border Gavaskar Trophy and it's it's looking on point. I just want to say my Nostradamus predictions are coming true yet again. Well, we all know it rains in Sydney, if it is in Sydney, but that mm. third test will be rained off. And then it's up to the Gabba where Australia hasn't lost since the 80s, I believe. So I don't know, Locke. It's a bit early to be calling your um, India series win just now. Maybe, maybe later. Yeah, yeah, but at the same point, you said they were no chance of winning that Boxing Day test. And look where we are now, day four, and it is done and it is in India's pocket. Oh, look, I don't mind being proven wrong when there's a performance like that. So, yeah, no, hats off to India. Superb. One final thing before we wrap up the second test. Matt Wade and Rishab Pant in a little bit of a sledging battle. Uh, what were your thoughts on that one, Nick? Oh, I didn't mind most of it. It was all mostly quite lighthearted, but... I think Matthew Wade take, taking a shot at um, Richard Pant's weight was a bit was a bit of a low blow. I agree. A little bit, yeah, um, yeah a, bit, a bit crass, a little bit immature, uh, a bit reminiscent of the cricket Australia of old, the pre-ball tampering days. And um, yeah, it was, it was something like you'd hear from a thirteen-year-old boy in a schoolyard, really. So, not the best bet, best moment there from Matthew Wade. But um, apart from that. Loved it. I thought it was brilliant, especially that moment when he spun around and ended up face-to-face with Richam just before the tea break. That was brilliant. Very good. Um, reminded me of those sort of Virat Kohli-Tim Payne battles two years ago. But I feel like that, yeah, Wade might have just crossed a line there and I feel like he would have stepped back a little bit after that. He probably knew he did the wrong thing. So hopefully that's sort of the last we see of going across that line again because the current Australian team has done a good job of stamping that sort of out of their game. All right. That's all for the second test. We don't know where the third test is going to be yet. Hopefully it will be at the SEG in Sydney, but there's every chance it'll be played all of about 300 centimetres from where the second test was played on the MCG. Who knows, but hopefully it's as good a match in Australia comeback firing. We're going to take a quick break and then come back and look at the ICC Awards of the Decade. Nick, the ICC Awards of the Decade are in a mixture of fan vote and panel awarded awards. I mean, the panel awards were the strongest part of it, but going from the 1st of January 2011 to about October this year, I believe it was. And I mean, there's a few surprising results, but really everything is as expected. Virat Kohli won the Sir Garfield Sobers Award for ICC Male Cricketer of the Decade. Elise Perry won the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Award for Female Cricketer of the Decade. Steve Smith, the Test Cricketer of the Decade, Virat Kohli, the One Day Cricketer of the Decade, Rashid Khan, the Men's T20 Cricketer of the Decade, and then Elise Perry swept both the One Day and T20 Cricketer of the Decade awards. What did you make of those awards, Nick, and were there any big surprises to you there? I think Elise Perry taking all three um, was at first a bit of a surprise. I did kind of think, wow, is there really no one that could have potentially pipped her for one of those prizes? But then you look at the numbers and you just realize and remember how incredible she has been mm. over the past uh, nine, ten years or however long it's been. Uh, I mean, some you know, some people and uh, some players do trump her with the batting numbers, but then on top of that, Perry has taken, what, 250 wickets as well. So it's just impossible to ignore her. And yeah, congrats on obviously a phenomenal career thus far. But um, yeah, the other mildly surprising one was Rashid Khan. And the only reason I say that is because I feel like he only burst onto the scene maybe three, four years ago, Um, five years ago, potentially. And I wasn't even sure if he was eligible. But then again, what does he average in the T20 format with the ball? 12? I mean, it's quite comfortably the best T20 bowling average in the history of the the format. So yeah, he is um, an incredible talent. And yeah. Really excited to see him hopefully play some test cricket over the next 12 months. 
His T20 bowling average is 12.62. So <laughs> when you think of it that way, that is that is pretty remarkable because it's just you, you don't think like someone would have an average that low. I guess for me, I was a bit surprised by that as well just because obviously, as you mentioned, he's only been around five years. He played his first T20 for Afghanistan in 2015, I think it was. He's played 48 matches since then. But you look at the types of teams that he has played in that time. He's played Zimbabwe five or six times. He's played the UAE. He's played Oman. He's played Hong Kong, Scotland, throwing Ireland a few series, almost 10 games against Ireland, another 10 games against Bangladesh. And really in terms of the caliber of teams he's played against in T20 cricket, I don't think you can give him that award no matter how good his numbers are. Like he has never played a T20 game against Australia. He has never played a T20 game against India. He's only played, I think, one T20 game against England. He's never played a T20 game against New Zealand. I think he's played one T20 game in a World Cup against South Africa. There's just so many numbers there that you look at it and go, sure, his bowling average is great, but there's other players. You, your Chris Gowes, your Kyron Pollards, your Andre Russells, your AB de Villiers, who you just think surely could have got a start or should have been picked ahead of Rashid Khan. I do understand what you're saying, but at the same time, you can't really take an award away from someone or the accolades away from someone just because of the scheduling around their test uh, around their side. Um, yeah, I hundred percent see what you're saying, but, um, to be fair, if he was in Australia or England, or even in one of the top tier nations, he would, he would still be taking wickets in my opinion. Like he would still be performing well if he came to Australia or played India. So I don't have a huge problem with it. And yes, Chris Gale, Abe Jabili is all legends of the game, but I, I was just happy to see him win the award because he's not only a classy talent, but he seems like a fantastic bloke as well. I mean, I thought Virat Kohli was also in the shout. He averages 50 in T20 cricket. He's scored 2,902 runs at an average of 50. Oh, that is you don't good, actually. You don't see anyone average 50 in T20 cricket. There's one or two below him that are in the mid-40s, but no one else is near him in terms of the runs scored and the average. Just, I get why they awarded it to Rashid Khan, but it just doesn't sit comfortably to me. Doesn't Barbara Azam also have like an absurd T20 record as well. He averages 50-something, I think. Yes, true. He He's also 50. He's scored 1,681 runs at an average of 50.93. Funnily enough, both Coley and Azam have never scored a T20 century. I never would have picked that. I never would have mm. guessed that. Wow. Yeah, 94 for Coley, not out, and Azam, 97, not out. They're top scores. Well, hopefully they, that comes pretty soon because they would have been two of the first people I would have picked with the exception of Gale for who would have got a T20 century. So, yeah, that one's an interesting one. I think it'll be a talking point for a little bit, but obviously Khan has a great career ahead of him and cannot wait to see him improve those numbers even more because there's no doubt he's going to get more opportunity to do so. The other thing we have to look at from these awards of the decades are the teams of the decade. And a few more talking points here. Let's start off with the men's test team of the decade. Alastair Cook and David Warner up top. Kane Williamson, Virat Kohli, Steve Smith as the middle order. Formidable. Kumar Sangakkara with the gloves. Ben Stokes at seven. Ravi Ashwin, Dale Stain, Stuart Broad, and Jimmy Anderson. That's a pretty incredible team. I mean, I've got one problem with it that we've discussed previously, but looking at that team, just looking at face value, what do you make of it? Well, there's no wicketkeeper. It's missing a wicketkeeper. <laughs> That's the big problem. No no one in that list, with the exception of David Warner for six overs in the UAE, is a wicketkeeper from the past decade. I know. Like, Kumar Sangakkara, phenomenal talent. And I would arguably, I think I did a team of the decade last year and put him in my team of the decade as a batsman just because he's so formidable and his record, I think he finished in 2015, was remarkable. But... You can't pick him as a wicketkeeper in this team. If you're making the call that he's in your team of the decade, he's got to be in one of those top five spots or top six spots, and then you put a keeper in number seven. But you can't give Sangakara the gloves when he didn't wicketkeep at all in the, the testing period, which was from the 1st of January 2011. 
they've just sort of fixed a problem quite cheaply, really. They've gone, oh, no, we could chuck in a wiki keeper, but no one, none of the keepers from this decade has an average above 50. Oh, well, we'll just give it to Sengakara, even though he hasn't been a wiki keeper in a test match since 2008. BJ Watling robbed, I tell you, absolutely <laughs> robbed. I would have loved to have seen him being in that team just because it would have been a little bit out of place. No one would have been expecting it. But at the end of the day, he's taken the most dismissals of wicketkeepers in that period. I mean, is there anyone else that you could think of that deserves to maybe be in that team? Because he has, I think it's 251 dismissals, maybe a bit less if you take out some of the tests that aren't in that period. Quinton de Kock is second, and then Johnny Bairstow is third in terms of test dismissals in that time. Do either of those three, do you think, should get in above Sangakara? I think it would have been controversial, but considering Sangakara did finish his test career in 2014-2015, I think I would excuse it if they did pick Watling ahead of Sangakara. Um, But look, Mm -hmm. Sangakara is obviously a better batsman than Watling, like just on paper. So, and he, he is obviously not a bad wicketkeeper either. Like he obviously did wicketkeep for most of his career and would have done a good job. So if you were picking 11 players, the one that they did, did pick would arguably be a better fielded side. But yeah, Watling, potentially robbed. All right, we've got to look at the ODI team of the decade. I'm okay with this one. I don't know about you, but Sharma Warner up top, Virat Kohli, Davili's Shakib Alassan, MS Dhoni, captain wicketkeeper at six. I think that one we can agree on for a wicketkeeper pick. Ben Stokes also gets in in seven. Stark, Bolt, Imran Tahir, and Lasset Malinga. I think that's a pretty good lineup, and they've balanced it pretty well. Is there anyone that you're surprised missed out there? Nah, this is perfect this is the most beautiful team like all these players have at some stage in their career dominated either a world cup or some sort of high profile tournament and yeah this is a very strong looking 11 no problems here all right the next one that we have to look at is the t20 international team of the decade for the men rohit sharma is again there up the top with chris gale aaron finch at three virat Kohli four ab de Villiers five Glenn Maxwell, the big show, makes it in at number six. MS Dhoni, captain and wicketkeeper at seven. Kyron Pollard, Rashid Khan, Jasper Bumra, and Lassith Malinga are your bowlers. Nick, I think you've got a bit of a problem in this one. Hit me with it. Uh, there's only three bowlers. How are they meant to get through 20 overs <laughs> with only three bowlers? Who's, who screwed this up? Oh, Kyron Pollard can can roll the arm over, and so can Glenn Maxwell. That's that's enough for you to get eight overs. You can get eight you overs. You really out of want it. Kyron Pollard and Glenn Maxwell bowling forty percent of your deliveries in a T twenty game. You're taking the fun out of it, Nick. It's you're not meant to actually put this team out in the park. Well, okay, okay. How about this? You have three openers at one, two, and three. I mean, <laughs> that that in itself is a problem. You've got you've got three openers take out one of the openers and bring in a fourth bowler. Doesn't that just fix the balance of the side completely? And then you have MS Dhoni at six, which is where he should be in a T20 game. It does make sense to me, I guess. Like there are a few players you go, maybe they could have gotten in the side. Um, Maybe Shakib Alassane could have been in there. If you take out maybe a Finch and put him in the middle order, just so you've got three all-rounders you can get your eight overs done out of because he does have a great T20 record as well. I mean, looking at some of the other names in terms of who's done well in T20 cricket since January 2011, some of the other names that step out, Tim Southey has done really well. He's got 65 wickets. I think that's the fifth most in the world. Imran Tahir is another one who's done really well in that period. So there's certainly bowling options there. But, yeah, I think they've just gone, okay, look, let's pick the best players and not worry about what it would actually look like out on the paddock. Well, I think that's a mistake because Coley should be at three, De Villiers should be at four, Maxwell should be at five, and Dhoni should be at six. That is the perfect T20 middle order. So as a result, who would you be maybe putting in at number seven? Would you be looking at someone like a Shakib Alassan to get a few more overs, or is there someone else who you go, maybe maybe that could work better? I think, yeah, depending on the pitch, <laughs> you'd go either Tim Southey or Shapik Alassan um, because there's plenty of batting. I mean, if you've got Rashid Khan at nine, there's obviously plenty of batting, so that's not a concern. But if you wanted that second spin option, yeah, you'd go Shakib Alassan, but otherwise Tim Southey to round out that batting order. And sorry, Aaron Finch, I know your 180-odd in that T20 game was phenomenal, or whatever he scored, 150-odd, whatever he scored that game. But um, 
no, he has to make way for another bowler. He should anyway. Did you think Baba Azam might have got a look into that team? Oh, very good point. Oh, there's already enough batsmen though. Yeah. And yeah, I think Baba Azam is kind of would replace Coley. Coley kind of takes the Baba Azam spot, unfortunately. Fair enough. Well, they're the men's teams of the decade going back to the 1st of January 2011. What's your thoughts on that? Do you think that are you a school of the decade is 2010 to 2019 or are you 2011 to 2020? Because I kind of did all my team of the decade stuff last year. Yeah, mathematically speaking, it's a bit weird when the new decade starts in 2021. That doesn't quite sound right to me. Like in no. my mind, the new decade was 2020. Like that's when we started the new decade. You know, we started the new millennium in 2000 and hence the new decade in 2010, 2020, etc. Anyway, that is besides the point. Let's look at some of these women's team of the decade. First off, the one-day team. Plenty of Aussie representation there. We've got Alyssa Healy up the top with Susie Bates, Mithali Raj, Meg Lanning is captain of the side, Stefani Taylor from the West Indies, and Sarah Taylor, the English wicketkeeper, is there. Elise Perry coming in at number seven, the South African power duo of Dane Van Niekerk and Marazan Kapp. And then Julian Goswami and Anissa Muhammad are your bowlers there. I think that's a pretty good team. I, As much as I want to be patriarchal and go, oh, there should be more Aussies there, I think they've got the balance right, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the one small surprise there is potentially Elisa Healy, actually, because I'd say for the first seven or eight years of that period, she wasn't necessarily amazing in the one-day format. She actually kind of struggled for runs potentially in the first five, six years of her career. But then in 2018 and 2019, obviously became the most prolific player in the world. Um, And so she kind of snuck in with the last couple of great years. But yeah, I think apart from Healy, Perry and Lanning, uh, none of the Aussie players were really bashing down the door to get into that side. So I'm I'm very happy with this side as well. It's a very strong side, very strong side. Looking at the sort of players who maybe could have gotten into that side, you can look at maybe an Amy Satterthwaite at the Kiwi or a Mignon de Priya, South Africa, maybe even Lizelle Lee or Heather Knight. But I think for the most part, they've got it pretty spot on. And I'm sure Alyssa Healy will continue to rocket up those ranks. But her average is at 34.94 in one-day cricket, and it's certainly below that top echelon of one-day cricketers. Now, the T20 women's team of the decade, I think, is pretty bang on yet again. Some good Aussie rep- representation yet again there. One extra here. We've got Alyssa Healy, the wicketkeeper up top, opening with Sophie Devine. That would be a damaging partnership, followed by the oh. Kiwi, Susie Bates. Meg Lanning, captain again. Then Harmon Precor, Stefani Taylor, Deandra Dotton, Elise Perry coming in at eight. <laughs> Anya Shrubsoul, nine. Megan Shoot, the shooter, is coming in at 10. Then you've got the Indian spinner, Poonam Yadav, coming in at 11. I like the look of that team that looks balanced. You're definitely getting your 20 overs there. What do you make of that one? Oh, pretty rough on having Elise Perry coming in at eight. It'll be like a waste, really. She'll just come in for a best-case scenario, a couple overs at the end. But um, just just quietly, Meg Lanning, captain of both sides. I mean, obviously well-deserved, leading Australia to, ooh, I think, two T20 World Cup titles and one World Cup title, something around there at least. And um, so, yeah, congrats to her. Superb effort. But, uh, yeah, very good balance side as well, as you said. Before we finish off on these teams of the decade, I, I want to put a question to you, a, a bit of a controversial one. We spoke about Elise Perry and how great it was that she won the Cricketer of the Decade Award, the Women's Cricketer of the Decade Award. Do you think there's an argument to be made that Meg Lanning should have won that award? Oh, certainly. I think there is an argument there. I mean, Lanning's record in um, both the one day and T20 format is phenomenal. And she did obviously lead Australia to those back-to-back T20 World Cup titles and not just as a leader, but as a character off the field as well. She's such a likable person and um, has one of the best batting techniques in the game. So there is definitely that case to say, why wasn't Lanning up for this position, up for this accolade as well? But Perry, at least Perry revolutionized the game. She brought a whole new audience to the sport and I think she rightfully deserves to be acknowledged and celebrated for that. Well, that's where we'll leave the discussion on the teams of the decade. Plenty of talking points there, and I'm sure they will continue. We'll take a quick break, and then we'll come back with all the wrap-up of the Big Bash and what's happening around the world in cricket.
Nick, the Big Bash, I've been getting more into it, I found, in this sort of second and third week. There's been some cracking games. The Sydney Tides are on top, but the Perth Scorchers are down on the bottom. What are the key takeaways you've had in this last week or so of the BBL? The big one for, for me are both the Sydney sides are phenomenal. Both those Sydney sides look really, really good. And the reason for that is is a really strong cluster of all-rounders in both their squads. I'm loving that Sydney Sixers middle order. I mean, you've got Dan Christian, Jason Holder, and Carlos Brathwaite. Like, that is just perfect coming towards the end of an innings. Those are the three people you want coming in. And then similarly for the for the Thunder, uh, Ben Cutting, Daniel Sams, and Chris Green. I mean, I'm looking right now at Chris Green and Ben Cutting smack a few extra boundaries and pushing the Sydney Thunder towards a 220-plus uh, total. So, yeah, these Sydney sides, I mean, ha- we haven't had a Sydney v. Sydney final in the BBL. This could be the year. I mean, looking at these two sides, they're on top of the ladder at the moment. And uh, honestly, they not many other teams are looking as strong. Well, it's good to see that Alex Howes has hit a bit of form. But the Thunder are on track. We'll come back in. I don't think it'll take long, but their highest ever total in the Big Bash. Previously, it was on Boxing Day when they hit 8 for 209 against the Renegades. And it looks like they're about to beat this against the Stars because they're on 7 for 208 with a hole over to go. So... They are in formidable form, and so are the Sixers, really, because before this tournament, they had never passed 200, and yet they did it against the Renegades with ease down in Hobart. So I think far and away, they're definitely the two front runners at the moment. I think we'll see a lot more records being broken in this tournament because of that new introduced power surge rule. I think that's the reason we're seeing higher scores, and we'll see more centuries because of that. We'll see more 200-plus scores, and we'll see more exciting rate run chases because of that, like we saw a couple nights ago up at on the Gold Coast. Well, let's talk about the game up on the Gold Coast. That was incredible. We'll, we'll get to the late finish in a sec, but that Nicholas Puran and Glenn Maxwell partnership was just a thing to behold. They were launching the ball all around Metricon Stadium, and that was just fantastic hitting. And we thought we won't see anything that'll match that this tournament. And then Dan Hughes goes and hits 95 or 96 or whatever it was to lead his side to victory. I'm going out on a limb and saying it was the best game that we've ever seen in the Big Bash. I don't know about you, but I personally think it was. Oh, definitely top three. For sure, top three. Uh, that final with the Sydney Sixers and Perth Scorchers and that run out has to be up there as well. But um, yeah, definitely before even the Stars innings had finished, I was writing my match report, which was the title <laughs> about the Stars' victory. I mean, there was no way that they were chasing that. Nicholas Puran, in his debut innings in the BBL, came to the crease. I think he got six runs from his first eight balls, and then he hit 40 from his next eight. He was just slapping boundaries with these. So they were incredible. But then then Daniel Hughes, not only the highest ever score by a Sixers player, but has to be said, one of the best innings we've seen in a run chase in BBL history and a coming of age innings for him as well because I've personally, and a lot of people, have seen him as a long-format cricketer, not the best in the shorter formats, but he was batting and striking, hitting the ball as well as anyone in the BBL that night. So hopefully we'll see more of that from him heading into the final series in February. To take a leaf out of the Simpsons book, the two sweetest words in the English language, re and write. Uh, for oh, any oh, 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 my heart. Especially when it's one fifteen am and I have to rewrite oh, it. Oh. Let's talk about that. Mm. I Before the match, I didn't like it. If every match that finishes at one fifteen am can be guaranteed to be that good, I would be okay with it. But something has to be done, especially when it's a game in Queensland, which is an hour behind. Sure, that doesn't make it as bad. But when it's a Sydney versus Melbourne game, so streaming into the Eastern States in daylight saving time, two teams who played in last year's grand final. So it's the first grand final rematch and it's finishing in those two states at 1.15am. That's It's just not on and it's not right. It felt strange. It felt really strange having the cricket on so late and it not being in Perth. It was almost as though, you know, the commentators were going to start swearing. There was going to be nudity. It was some sort of after-dark BBL sort of scandalous thing. I was getting delirious at one point because it was 1am and the game was still happening. And I think, unfortunately, because of how condensed the summer schedule is, the, the choices really are those a couple of late games, as we saw, or what we're seeing at the moment, which is the two matches happening at the same time. And obviously because of the coronavirus, it's really restricted how Cricket Australia can handle their scheduling. But 
hopefully next season we don't see this again because I, I was just not a fan. I mean, we saw one of the best run chases in BBL history and most of the country was asleep. What would you prefer? Late night finishes or overlapping games like we're seeing here on Tuesday night? I think if they are going to have a late game, it, it should be in Perth so that at least the spectators, if it's 7pm there, like it's a late night finish there, then it, at least some people won't be more likely to go watch the game. Um, obviously, that's not been possible this year because of the, the travel restrictions and coronavirus, so I can understand. But yeah, hopefully this is the last season we'll be seeing those late games um, because it, it just didn't work, unfortunately. It was... Uh, if especially when there was test cricket the next morning at 10 a.m. Like the cricket fanatics really had to push their sleep patterns. All right. I caught up with Steve O'Keefe in his press conference after that incredible match. He, he, he's pretty sure he didn't hit the winning runs that they were definitely leg buys, but he said he tried to claim and he tried to go back through the footage and have a watch. But here's what he had to say on that thrilling early morning finish up on the Gold Coast. I actually had to go and watch the replay to find out exactly what had happened. I couldn't even remember it coming off my body. I honestly thought maybe it'd come off um, Dunkey's foot, but looking at the replay, yeah, it come off the top of my hip. So um, just bizarre. Yeah, one of the one of the weirdest finishes to a game I've ever played in. Going out there, sort of nine down. What was that chat like with Grinder when you went out there? What was the plan for those last two balls? Um, I was pretty relaxed going off the field. You know, I was obviously very tense given the situation of the game. Um, but I just try and have a bit of a joke and a bit of a laugh. Um, and then, yeah, I went out, originally went out, um, I was with Husey and I think Cool and I was going to bowl it. And I think we had a bit of a chat around, well, do you just want to take all six and see if you can win us the game the way that you're hitting the ball? And then Maxi came on and, uh, you know, again, the chat sort of changed. And then Husey, you know, it just looked like he was going to win us the game off his own bat. So I thought I'd just park myself at the end and watch and then, find yourself on strike and um, yeah, Grinder came out and just basically said, look, let's just run as hard as we possibly can and watch the ball as hard as we can. But um, I think, I think I got both of them wrong, to be honest. I just uh, swung as hard as I possibly could, but didn't get anywhere near it. Um, didn't watch it at all. And uh, we were just lucky, you know, but I think, you know, hats off to a guy like Glenn Maxwell. He's the sort of guy who puts his head in the fire week in, week out for that team. Um you know, I think I kind of apologised at the end. I think they deserved a better finish or at least to get the runs off the bat, but um, such is the nature of T20 cricket. All right, Nick, the next big, massive, whatever you want to use hyperbolite to hyperbolize this talking point out of the big bash, the umpiring howlers. There have been some Barry Crockers. It has been so bad. I mean, balls hitting the bat and Batsmen get given out in LBW. Clear caught behinds that the umpires are just missing. What is going on here? Because we've always had domestic umpires in the big bash. So it's not in terms of the umpiring quality is dropped in terms of who's actually doing it, but the actual quality of decisions has been really, really poor. It is bizarre, isn't it? Some of them have been really, really ugly. Oh, the, the LBW shout off poor Tom Cooper. He he middled oh. the thing onto his front pad and the umpire had his finger raised. And that was really, that was a bad look for the sport. And then last night, uh, there was a, a fairly close LBW shout for Rashid Khan, which most umpires would have given out, but the umpire decided to give not out. But then the next over, another batsman just clipped it beautifully down to fine leg for four. And even though he hit the middle of his bat, was given out LBW. It, there's been some really baffling ones, and I think there has to be something done. I, I know they can't introduce the full DRS because of the costs, and I get that, but surely something needs to be done to fix this because it's just going to keep happening otherwise. Surely with the third umpire essentially already there, they can quickly check as the player is walking off the field for how they don't, they shouldn't even need DRS. If it's a close LBW call, leave it. If it's a close court behind call, leave it. But if it's obvious that the guy has hit the middle of the bat with the ball and he's been given out LBW, then overturn it before he steps out the boundary. Surely it should be that simple. I think, unfortunately, um, I can't remember which journalist said this, but someone pointed out on Twitter that they did have that system in BBL01 and everyone hated it, apparently. I honestly don't remember, but apparently it was a disaster. So that does sound simple in theory, but I think, unfortunately, it's not as uh, successful as we think. 
I just think that surely it's better than what we've got right now. And I was on a press conference with Dawood Milan, the world number one T20 batsman and Hobart Hurricanes player today. And he was saying the same thing, that surely even if they introduced something straight away, the players would prefer that because they're fixing a problem that clearly exists. Here's what he had to say about that. Yeah, um, I actually think I'm not going to walk if I don't get the first sip in the next game and try my luck. Um, but uh, no, I, I'm joking. It's um, look. It, I, th- I think with with all the tournaments around the world, DRS is there now. Um, you know, it creates fair competition in the sense that you know look, everyone makes mistakes. Umpires make mistakes. Batsmen make mistakes. We all play good shots, bad shots. Um, umpires can make mistakes. They're, they're only human. Um, but you know, in these big tournaments where one decision could change the whole game. Um, to have something like a DRS, even if it's just that one, one review can make it sort of can make it um, a win or a loss in, in, in a game. Um, you know, especially with these new rules as well. You know, if you're taking wickets in those first ten, you know the game sort of seems to slip away. Um, you know, from 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 opposition, so or from yourself as well. So you know, I, I think it's imperative that you have it. I think the good thing about the big bash is that they are televising every game. If you're not televising all the games, and obviously it becomes unfair if you're playing a game where there isn't, but because there's the opportunity and every game is televised, um, you know, to have that DRS, I think, is is key. Because it just, you know, for, for such a good tournament, it just keeps the standards of the tournament that much higher. Nick Milan says it's imperative that this gets introduced. I think there's a report on cricket.com.au that a BBL version of DRS will be coming out next year. Do you think they should be rushing in and just going, let's get it in ASAP? No, it's something for next season. Uh, definitely something for next season. I think we'll make do this year, um, particularly in you know, COVID-stricken times. But um, certainly they'll have the winter months to really you know, work out what the best solution is and have a system in place for BBL 11. Well, there's plenty more to chat about. Nick, I've absolutely been loving the young players in the BBL. You've got 15-year-old Nu Ahmad down at the Renegades, but the ones that have been catching my eye, the Thunder duo of Ollie Davies and Tanvir Sanger, they have been fantastic. And they have been a breath of fresh air for the Thunder down in Canberra. Are there any players that have caught your eye so far in the competition? Oh, certainly of the younger crop. As you said, Ollie Davies, a really talented player coming out of Manly. He did represent Australia earlier this year in the Under-19 World Cup, and he seems to have converted his form really easily into the uh, the BBL format. And um, But thankfully, a lot all the cricket traditionists will be happy to know that his number one aim is to play Sheffield Shield cricket, um, which is obviously really exciting for the New South Wales Blues squad. But um, certainly him, and uh, yeah, I think that that's the good thing about the BBL. I mean, one criticism people do have of the BBL is that there aren't enough international players, but it's a double-edged sword because we get to see some of the young guns coming through and some people who wouldn't necessarily get a go in other state tournaments. So yeah, that's the big advantage of the BBL. These young guns coming through, it's fantastic. I just want to quickly point out before we uh, move on with a few things from around the world that there are some interesting things trending on Twitter yet again, that you will enjoy. Okay. One of them is Sean Marsh, and one oh, of them is Kawaja. No, it's done. Oh, come on. It's happening again. It's happening okay. again. Oh, Look, to be fair, Sean Marsh is playing. He he hit a, a decent 67, so maybe we'll give him that reason, but... Look, I'm just putting it out there that Australia has had a poor batting performance and Sean Marsh is trending on Twitter. You You draw the parallels. Look, I feel like we're going to be doing season seven of this podcast in 2026, and we'll still be talking about whether Sean Marsh will make his way back into the test side after a batting collapse. And he's just never going to go away, is he? Look, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. All right, Nick, before we leave the BBL behind, a quick look at the new rules. You kind of talked about how the batting power play has seen batters come to the fore and higher totals. What about the other two? Anything with the bonus point or the X factor caught your eye? Well, with the bonus point, we have seen now on two occasions the Melbourne Renegades try and chase the 10-over mark for that one point on the ladder and on both occasions suffer a massive collapse and now as a result have the 
first and second largest loss in BBL history. <laughs> so the bonus point has changed the game, but not very well for the Melbourne Renegades. Um, and with the X Factor, well, I still haven't seen any productive or effective uses of it yet. I mean, every time someone is subbed on, the person who's brought on typically hasn't done very well, unfortunately. The best X Factor of this season, I think, will be in that Indian T20 series when Ravi Jadeja was subbed off. <laughs> Yeah, Shahal definitely made an, more of an impact there than we've seen from any of the X-Factor players in the BBL. Look, I'm happy to say that the first two rules, the power play and the bonus point, for the most part have been successful in terms of the goals Cricket Australia set out. But yeah, it's a, still a big red cross next to the X-Factor for me unless I can see something change. We've got a couple of international stories to chat about before we go into Savage Seeds. Faf Duplessis, for the first time in his career, passed 150 and looked all odds like he was going to bring up that elusive double century, only to be dismissed for 199. How heartbreaking is that from good old Faf? Oh, poor Faf. We saw him on social media a couple of weeks ago doing laps of Newlands with his shirt off and his impeccable <laughs> rig on display. And, I mean, it would have been the perfect th- thing for him to follow it up with a double century, but... It wasn't to be. He he did almost a Shane Warne. Instead of just pushing the quick single and, you know, scampering through, he decided to go for the big tonk and was caught. It was, um, I mean, the most entertaining part about it was the reaction from the change rooms. His teammates were devastated. I can't believe that he's 36 and he's never passed 150. I think we both sort of said at the time that we kind of just assumed that he had, but in his eight years or so, he never had passed that milestone. So it's good to see that he finally was able to bring that up. Yeah, exactly right. I think there's, I might be wrong, but someone, Mark Waugh might be quite similar in that he got a lot of centuries, but never turned them into really big centuries in his test career. I don't know exactly what his high score was, but it was definitely less than 199. Well, South Africa are well on top there over in Centurion. They scored 621 in their first innings. Sri Lanka, 396 in their first, but are currently 6 for 148 and still 77 runs behind. So South Africa could be tying up an innings victory as we speak. The other big international test going on at the moment is over in New Zealand. I mean, looks like Kiwis are going to get the chocolates over the Pakistanis there again, thanks to Kane Williamson. Well, I don't care what the test rankings say. Kane Williamson is the best batsman in the world at the moment. I mean I, know it. It's, I mean, I know it says Steve Smith, but he hasn't scored a test century in Australia since 2017. Kane Williamson, I mean, he's such a lovely bloke, and he just continually scores runs. I'm still just so upset he wasn't able to show off his skills in during the three test series in Australia last summer. But apart from that, he was he's just been remarkable, uh, both at home and away, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, he's New Zealand's greatest test batsman of all time already, and he's only partway through his career. All right, we're going to take a quick break before we get into Savage Seeds. Nick, before we get into Savage Seeds, we have some breaking news. We sort of speculated throughout the podcast about whether the New Year's test will take place in Sydney, whether it will be moved to Melbourne. At the grand old time of 10.07pm, Cricket Australia have confirmed that the Sydney Cricket Ground will host the third test between Australia and India. How good is this? Well, thank the Lord. I think on behalf of Sydney siders, we'll be seeing some test cricket this year. I mean, uh, obviously, like if it wasn't possible, um, then having back-to-back tests in Melbourne would have been the ideal choice. But clearly, Cricket Australia and all the advice they've received believe that it is still safe enough to play the news test in Sydney. So I think a fantastic result, certainly for Sydney cricket fans. And um, hopefully the pitch and crowd can provide a pretty good contest for this uh, third match of the Bordegavsker Trophy. I'll just go through some of this statement quickly from Cricket Australia. Nick Hockley, the interim CEO, has spoken about they've had constant meetings with the New South Wales and Queensland government. Uh, Their quote is, we have met regularly over the past week to assess the unfolding public health situation in Sydney, engage its impact on border restrictions. To date, we have been able to deliver a safe and successful summer. To that end, we have made the decision to keep the New Year's test at the SCG. 
We're confident that both this match and the fourth test in Brisbane will play out in a safe and successful manner. We are grateful to New South Wales and Queensland governments for their willingness to work with us to deliver the series as planned in a manner that places the safety and well-being of the players, official staff as its top priority. In response to the public health situation in New South Wales and the requirements of the Queensland government, Cricket Australia will put in place appropriate biosecurity measures and we thank all players, staff and broadcasters for their cooperation. So essentially what we're seeing here is that the players, the staff, everyone involved in the games will go into a tighter bubble, essentially. So Queensland has said, okay, if they do that, they can have the test in Sydney and then come up to Queensland. Personally, I'm a little bit surprised that they have made the decision. I thought it would have been the safer option just to have the third test in Melbourne, but... Look, if they can pull this off, I think it will be good. Well, yeah, and you look at the numbers of COVID cases in New South Wales over the past week or so, they have been very reassuring. They have been uh, primarily in the single digits. It's been gradually declining. And I think they would have looked at that and taken on the advice from New South Wales Health and decided, you know what, although there is still a a minor risk, uh, we think we can go ahead with the Sydney Test match. So... Yeah, I'm just uh, now I'm just looking forward to seeing some cricket in the flesh again. Well, I guess that leads us perfectly into finishing off the episode with Savage Seeds. Nick, what have you got for us? I think there's always there seems to always be in the Australian side a, a, an enigma or someone who is always just in another side and can never quite hold down the spot. I think first we had Shane Watson, you know, always getting to 50 but never converting to hundreds, and then we had Sean Marsh, who we're still talking about to this very day, and I feel as though Australia's next enigma, the person who's going to be in and out of the test side for the next 15 years, will be Travis Head. Okay, that's an interesting one, that he's going to be the next Sean Marsh kind of thing you're saying. Exactly right. He'll be in and out of the side consistently. He'll go back to the Sheffield Shield, score centuries, and be re-picked for the test side and get a streak of low scores. And some people will love him, some people will hate him. He'll just be that next character who, uh, the biggest what-if around the Australian test side. I back that. I think, look, he, it's his birthday, so we've got to be nice to him. He's 27 today. Happy birthday, Travis. But, yeah, just on the basis of, of performances that he's had lately, it's kind of disappointing. But he's the sort of player who could go back to shield and get runs easily. And I, I'd like to see him lock down that position five in the side once Wade retires. But oh, it's just hard when he hasn't grabbed that opportunity with both hands that he's been given. He's played, what, 19 tests now. Yeah, exactly right. And people forget he's already been dropped once. He missed that fifth Ashes test when they picked, of all people, Mitch Marsh ahead of him. So I think it's very likely he'll be dropped again quite soon. If he doesn't score any runs, that will certainly happen. And then he'll go back to the Shield and just plunder centuries for fun. And then we'll see him again in 24 months' time. Well, that's fair enough. Uh, Would you like to hear my Savage Seeds? Oh, absolutely. Always. Mine involves another man we were talking about a lot earlier in this episode, Jinka Rahane. He should be the Indian Test captain. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I kind of think so. I kind of think so. I mean, no one denies how strong Collie is as a cricketer and as a batsman, but based purely off four, those four days of Test cricket, the MCG. My goodness, he was not only a great decision maker, but was a great character. You saw mm. when his teammate, I think it was Jadeja, ran him out early on day three. He, he wasn't bitter. He wasn't upset. He didn't do a Coley tantrum. He gave his mate a pat on the back and I'm sure said, keep going, mate, you know, get us through, um, gave him some spurring words. So, yeah, certainly. I mean, I don't know what leadership experience has Rahani has back in Indian domestic cricket, but um, that's a pretty good shout. I just loved his tactical nails in that game, that he moved his field really well in that first innings. He just had the field play so well that Australia couldn't get the spinners away. And it was such a great use of tactics because Australia felt swamped and cramped. They couldn't do anything about it. And you kind of saw in the second innings as a result of that, Australia tried to be a little bit more aggressive and that kind of was their downfall again as well. So I really feel his captaincy kind of influenced that. I thought his bowling changes were really good, especially considering Yadav was out for that second innings as well. And this isn't saying Coley isn't a good captain because clearly he knows how to get the best out of his players. But one comment that has been said a lot in the last couple of days since this test match is that Rahane is clearly a bowler's captain. He knows how to get the best out of his bowlers. And for a captain, 
I'd argue that's the most important thing. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I think you're exactly right. It's hard. It's hard to disagree with that. And uh, yeah, Rahana. I mean, whenever you get three wickets in the field caught behind square in the leg side, like that suggests that your field placements are spot on. I mean, that was just ridiculous. And I think Australia did also in the second innings have their lowest run rate in a home innings in something like 20 years. I don't have the stat in front of me, but it was a long time. And that is largely to do with, as you said, Rahane's field placement. All right. Well, that is where we're going to wrap up this week's episode and the last episode for the year, Nick. We are finally going to be out of this year we call 2020. How about that? Oh, my goodness. Have you watched um, Netflix Death to 2020 yet? Yes, that was uh, very good. Love me a bit of Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, yes, yes. I had a good giggle to that as well. But um, yeah, thank God this year is finally over. What's your New Year's resolution, mate? That hopefully I get to all five days of the Sydney Test match. What about you? What do you think your New Year's resolution will be? I'm going to say uh, to take a seven for. Oh, no, wait, I did that. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) do you feel dirty for doing that? Very much so, but I'm very proud. (laughs) On that disgusting note. Uh, <laughs> make sure to subscribe to the Boundary Rider podcast wherever you get your podcasts, whether it be Apple or Spotify. We are there. Share it with your friends and family. Leave a comment and a rating. We really do appreciate it. You can also interact with us on social media Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Boundary Rider podcast. We're set to be on YouTube and maybe even join a bit of TikTok to get Nick's dances up on the small screen soon. And you can also hit us up at boundaryriderpod at gmail.com. Nick, thank you as always for joining me tonight. Oh, thank you, Locke. You're a legend, mate. Thank you for a good uh, a good year, and I'll speak to you after the Sydney test. We will see you all in 2021.